morning. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We continue on in our track through Romans. Um, we have come to this place where Paul is pointing out that the righteousness of God and the judgment of God is just and right. And it's just and right for everyone because all have sinned. Something we should notice as we go through this text, uh, beginning in verse 18 where he says, The wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men uh, who suppress the truth. And their wickedness. From that point, all the way through chapter 3, particularly verse 20, one of the things that Paul is doing is trying to help the reader to see and his audience to see that there is no one who is righteous. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He is spending a tremendous amount of ink to help us to see the desperate situation that all of us are in, apart from the grace and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that we can know through Him. So that's what we're talking about over the next several weeks is just how rotten sinful we are. <laughs> and Paul brings that out in speaking of how God's judgment is right and true. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith deals with the sinfulness of mankind Beginning with Adam and Eve, they, Adam and Eve, being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room and stead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, that's you and me, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgression. In other words, we are totally depraved. We are sinful beyond measure. Paul's been laying that out from chapter 1, verse 18, up through last week we dealt through verse 32. And he's saying, 
They're all without excuse. These people who have suppressed the truth of God and His righteousness, these who have pursued sinful desires, they're without excuse. And so God did what? He gave them over. You know, during those sermons, we were, as I was preaching, man, I'd get some amens, you know. I mean, yeah. It was usually about them. It was about those people. Today, I want us to look at that's exactly what's going on here. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is exercising a literary device called a diatribe. It's more prevalent and more obvious later on in the letter. But a diatribe is a conversation of an author with an imaginary uh, opponent or student. And... You may remember, well, you know, since grace abounds when sins abound, shall we continue to sin? What does Paul say? Well, that's a diatribe. He's got this imaginary opponent asking this question, and he says, by no means. Paul answers it. Of course not. That's a diatribe. Here there's a diatribe going on between uh, Paul and the one he only addresses as you, in these verses, I, I want us to see that the you in these verses are like us in certain circumstances as it regards other sinners. Yeah, they need to repent. Yeah, they need to. And we forget. And so Paul's about to turn the tables on you. And me, and all who judge, but do the very things that we judge others for. I want to do this with four points. I had to count them. I was thinking three, but it's four. First, God judges the self-righteous hypocrite. We're going to see that come out in this text today. Secondly, God's judgment is and always is and always has been and always shall be according to truth. God's judgment is according to truth. Thirdly, God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment is inescapable lastly I like this one I like all of them you'll be wanting me to get to the end God's mercy is more it's more so first of all 
let's look at this. God judges the righteous self, the self-righteous hypocrite. Verse 1, it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I had my own little diatribe with someone who wrote on an offering envelope saying it's not right to judge while they were judging me. Y'all never picked up on that, did you? While they were judging me. And I argued that absolutely I should not judge in the sense that I condemn someone. I don't have that power. But we do judge as to what is right and what is wrong. And we do judge one another as believers. That's called accountability. But we have no power to condemn And right here we see that Paul is making an argument. Therefore, you have no excuse. And we have to ask the question, who's he arguing with? I mentioned the literary device. But it's important to note the change of tense that takes place between verse 32 and verse 1 of chapter 2. Notice in verse 32 that though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice the tense from they, third person plural, to second person singular in chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore, you. Have no excuse. What's he been saying about they? They have no excuse. But now he's saying you, singular, or uh, have no excuse. Second person singular, you have no excuse. Whoever the you is, is an opponent who agrees with Paul's argument that they have perverted the knowledge of God. And God is right to give them over. All right? So uh, this opponent that Paul is dealing with agrees what Paul says about those that he's been talking about up to this point. But Paul's argument is that you have no excuse, just like they have no excuse, because you practice the same things. Paul doesn't identify the you in these first verse. Who is this? We come to find out in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew. (laughs) Okay, now we have something, don't we? Certainly the first Verses in chapter 1, 18 through 32, we see very much the Gentile world at play. 
But here now, Paul is about to speak to the Jew who wagged their tongues and their heads at these Gentile pagans. Earlier than that, in verses 9 and 10, we see that Paul writes, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does, does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. He's going to do that a lot during the letter in Romans to Romans. He's going to do that Jew first and also the Greek, Jew first and also the Greek. And what he's doing is he's including everybody in the argument. The Jews can't stand back and say, yeah, you're right about those Gentiles. Paul's now introducing the thought that, hold up, I'm also right about you. And God is right about you. That you're no different than they are. You do the same thing. We have some confidence that he's speaking to the Jews because of the context that follows all of this where he brings in the law and the fact that the Gentiles don't have the law. But the law is not what matters because Gentiles can know what is right apart from the law and Jews know what is right with the law and both of them go against it and prove that they are sinners through and through. Such is the case with all mankind. In verse 2, we see that Paul starts out verse 2 with, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We. He included himself in it. He included himself in this argument. We. We who? We the Jews. And so the opponent is the Jew. They're the ones wagging their heads and their tongues at the ones mentioned above. There in the same verse we see, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Therefore. We always know what that means. Whatever came before the therefore is therefore the therefore. If you followed that, you're good, okay? But the therefore refers to what was said previously. And although the final uh, list certainly would apply to Jewish behavior, uh, both in the history of the Jews and their behavior in the first century, that they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That certainly applies to them, but I don't think that the therefore is just going back to that list. Instead, I think the therefore is going back to 118. For the wrath of God has been revealed or is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress 
the truth. The wrath of God has been revealed to the Gentiles in a general revelation that, uh, through nature. And in nature we can see the divine power and the divine glory, the divine majesty. Enough so that we can give glory to God. But also the wrath of God has been revealed to the Jews by means of special revelation, particularly the law. And what did the Jews do? They suppressed the truth. They did. All through their history, we see them suppressing the truth of God. In rebellion, in unrighteousness, in idolatry, in going after other gods, in sexual immorality, they've done the same things and continue to do so. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness. So here in therefore, since God's wrath has been revealed in all ungodliness, not in ignorance, but in knowledge of the living God, he's putting the finger pointers in their place. And he's asking another question. What it says, do you suppose, O man of God, you who judge, verse 3, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you? Will you escape the judgment of God? Paul's asking them this question. Do you really think you, you practice the same things? Even though you're a Jew, you practice the same things? Do you think you'll escape on the basis and the merit that you are a Jew? Paul's making sure that they understand. Absolutely not. You're not going to escape because of your Judaism. You're not going to escape because you received the law. not going to happen. Paul's point is not that we all fall short and that nobody's perfect, therefore we should not judge what is right or wrong. Therefore, we should not judge others in their condition. That's not the point. The point of this text is that we all fall short and nobody's perfect, and you will not escape the wrath of God unless you repent. That's the point. You're not escaping. Unless you believe and unless you repent, 
You have no merit of your own. We sang it today. Nothing qualifies you for the kingdom of God. Except faith and repentance through Jesus Christ alone. No amount of law-abiding old Jew will save you. No amount of behavioral modification, Gentile, will save you. No amount of doing good, no amount of knowing what is true, will save you. The moral whitewash cannot cover the stench of the tomb that you are, that it attempts to gloss over. God judges the self-righteous hypocrite who looks at everything and everyone but his own heart. Secondly, God's judgment is according to truth. Look what it says in verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It rightly falls. God's judgment accords with the facts of the case. Remember last week we did an analogy as regarded to the trial of God. I guess you could say that the trial is still going on. But now God is asking some questions. Oh man, you think you're going to escape? God's judgment accords with that which is true. The facts of the case. And he judges impartially. Look what it says, verse 11. God shows no partiality. Uh, The Jew first and also the Greek. The Jew first and also the Greek. Both the condemned and the redeemed. He doesn't play favorites. The punishment fits the crime. His judgment is always correct. That's what Paul's saying. He acquits those who are innocent and he condemns those who are guilty. And he will judge the world in righteousness. And the people's in his faithfulness. I read my pastoral prayer this morning from Psalm 96 where he says, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. No, let me repeat that. The peoples in His faithfulness. Not that we are faithful, but that He is faithful. He will judge according to righteousness, not our righteousness, but His righteousness.
God's judgment can't be called into question. His goodness, his righteousness, his judgment is unimpeachable. You can't toss it and say, you can't look at God and say, but that's not fair. Notice something else about verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Paul saying that we already know this is true. It's not news. It's not some new revelation. You're not learning this for the first time, he's saying. You know this is true. Our engagement in condemning other things is proof that we know those things are wrong. We know it. Paul's also saying that God's judgment is always according to the truth. Just because we know something is wrong does not spare us from condemnation. It's not the possession of truth that saves us from condemnation. It's the action of righteousness that saves us from condemnation. It's the action of righteousness. And if we are unrighteous people, then the only thing that can save us from condemnation is the righteous action of another. That's it. The righteous action of another. And that's exactly what happens in salvation. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to us through faith and repentance. Paul saying, I want you to know the judgment of God is according to truth. And you can know the truth all you want. But unapplied truth leads to condemnation, leads to judgment. Oh, Jew, you know these things to be true. Oh, preacher, you know these things to be true. But unapplied truth leads to condemnation. Well, how is it applied? It's applied by faith, through faith. No other way. The next thing I want us to see is that God's judgment is inescapable. Look what he says in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you? 
Paul's not only saying that God will judge rightly, he's also saying that those who have not acknowledged their own sin, who have not run to Jesus Christ, God's judgment will result in their condemnation. Those who have not acknowledged their own sin. Not only will the verdict be just and according to truth, but the sentence will be carried out totally and completely. There's no probation. There's no deferred adjudication. You know, I once had a CDL license. I got it so that I could drive the bus back here. And I found out the hard way something. When you have a CDL license, you are considered a professional driver. I kind of like the sound of that, to tell you the truth. Professional driver. You ought to see me take some of those turns on 315. Looks professional. That's Gina. Her right hand is just like this, holding on to that handle. Then I got pulled over. And do you know what they don't do with professional drivers? You don't get deferred adjudication. You can't go to defensive driving. I might have changed. I don't have that thing anymore because I had to pay the full weight of that fine. Full price. Y'all got any discounts? Nope. Whoops. The complete sentence will be carried out because of, by God's righteous judgment. And that will be eternity in the lake of fire. And your sentence will not be commuted for good behavior. I imagine those who come up, 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 up under the judgment of God that sentences them to that eternity will be crying out the gospel for all eternity and no one will commute their sentence. No one. Why? Because God's judgment is righteous and just. It's ironic, don't you think, that the only escape from God's judgment is to accept God's judgment. I'm going to say that again. The only escape from God's judgment is to accept God's judgment. Yes, Lord, you're right about me. I do deserve condemnation. I do deserve hell. 
Yes, I fall short. Yes, I deserve the sentence. But I'm running to Jesus. That's the right response. We are sinful. And Paul's making sure that the Jew knows that don't be wagging your head at the Gentile. You do the very same things. You're under the same judgment. You're under the same penalty. In thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of the novel by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. It's kind of hard to plow through the book, but they've got several versions of it in film. I particularly like the one with George C. Scott in it. His old partner in business when he was still alive, Marley, shows up one evening wrapped in this chain. And, and he begins to speak. And listen to this verse where it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In the conversation, what we see here is that He's leading us to this, and your hard, stubborn heart, verse 5, is doing something. It's storing up wrath. That chain of Marley represents that. He's saying you despising the kindness, despising God leading to you to repentance is like that chain. And you are storing wrath. You're storing barns full of wrath. Nobody's storing wrath for you. You're storing it. Marley looks at Scrooge. When asked about the chain, he said, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on, on of my own free will. And of my own free will, I wore it. It's is its pattern strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length and uh, of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full, as heavy, and as long as this, seven Christmas Eves ago, you have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. That's what we do with our sin. We store up wrath. Nobody's doing it for you. Well, if he would stop being there, if she would stop doing this, if they, I wouldn't do these things. I wouldn't say these things. I wouldn't be like this. If it weren't for them, they're not storing up wrath for you. You're storing up wrath for you. Do you despise? Do you presume on? Do you despise 
the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's a rough thought, isn't it? I wonder if you're wondering, well, do I have that wrath stored up? I don't know. Have you let the kindness of God lead you to repentance? Because I want you to know this truth. His mercy is more than all your sin. His grace outpaces the sinfulness of your heart. His grace, once applied, covers over the multitude of sinfulness and burns down the barns you have stored your wrath in, along with the contents. Because we're going to come to this place in Romans where he said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? His mercy is greater than the wrath that you and I deserve. That wrath has been burned up. It's been absorbed in the Son of God as He hung on a cross where He received all, all, all of the wrath that you deserved, that I deserved. He bore it, not you. Somebody ought to be smiling, okay? Somebody ought to be rejoicing in their heart that the Son of God took upon Himself our sin and our punishment. <laughs> Listen to this. Do you despise? Listen to this next word. The riches of his kindness. Uh, the implication of that word says that there is a treasure chest full of the kindness of God. There are no boundaries on this treasure. It is eternal, his kindness and his forbearance and his patience. Riches of kindness. He just continues to spend them while you have a hard and unrepentant heart. And he keeps being kind. And he keeps being tolerant. And he keeps being patient. And he calls us to himself to repent and find in him all the great joy 
that is in him. All the joy that we've looked for in all these other ways. In the sexual perversions, in the uh, envy, in the uh, slander, in all these things, in trying to exalt ourselves. We thought we would find joy. We couldn't. We still can't. But Paul is saying, oh, you know the kindness of God leads even the hardest heart and rebellious soul to the grace of God that takes us into repentance. <laughs> and if you have trusted in Christ and if you have repented, you, you can't do this. I can't hardly do it anyway, okay? You can't pat yourself on the back for it. You can't say, well, I believed. Well, you did. But let me tell you how you believed. You believed because God awakened you to believe. Not a one in here has believed because you're that smart or because you're that good. You have believed because God made you alive. You were a dead child of wrath. <laughs> and now you're a living child of God. Of no doing of your own. But all the doing is of Christ. And it's in Him that we find the great joy. I wanted to read a passage out of this, out of Augustine's. Confessions, where he speaks of the sweetness. Augustine lived a horrible, immoral life until God awakened his soul to the truth of the gospel. And he wrote there, and by the way, this is out of a book called The Legacy of Sovereign Joy. It's by John Piper. He's got a whole series of them. They're out of print now, but he's got a big, thick book with all of them in it. And here he says, he writes regarding Augustine, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. I mean, all he found in all of his sin, he was looking for joy. And he found it somewhat. But none of it ever measured to the beautiful joy that he found in Christ. John Piper comments on Augustine's thinking of joy, sovereign joy. He says, we need to make plain that total depravity, which all of us have and have had, is not just badness, but blindness to beauty and deadness to joy. All we need to find 
that what we see and call beautiful, apart from knowing the living God, has no beauty at all compared to the joy that comes from the sovereign God. Paul's saying, God is just in condemning you. Y'all see a couple of things going on? God has two responses to our hypocrisy. One, judgment. Two, repentance. Redemption. Joy. Which one will you Father, we thank you for your goodness and faithfulness. We thank you, God, that, Lord, you don't call us to a fruitless, dull, boring existence as believers. But instead, you call us to fruitful joy in you. In you, Lord, we find our greatest pleasure. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would not lose sight of that. Father, for those, Lord, who uh, set in condemnation of other and have all their hopes in the goodness, Lord, that they are living out, Father, I pray that you would call them to repentance and save their souls. Father, for all of us, Lord, who sit in judgment, but our hearts are not broken because of the sinfulness that we find in this world. Our hearts are not broken for those, Lord, who choose to go against you and away from you. Father, I pray that you would help us to have a heart that is right and good and that our hearts would be broken because of the sin of those around us. Lord, in our own families. Father, instead of waiting for them to act right, that we would love them with the same love, Lord, that you've loved us. Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.